Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Patrick Ungershik is a guest on today's show. He's an entrepreneur, CEO, renowned exit strategist and author of Dance in the End Zone. Before we get a chance to speak with Patrick, it's a Leadership Hacker News. In the news today, we explore whether positive thinking in leadership is overrated. Overestimating success is detrimental to the well-being compared to making decisions based on sound, unbiased data, according to new research. In a study of 1,600 participants in the British Household Panel Survey, which is a national well-being gauge launched almost three decades ago by scientists at the University of Bath, have tracked people's life expectations, actual outcomes over the last 18 years. And according to their findings, overestimating success is detrimental to well-being, compared, of course, to setting realistic goals. In a team's assessment, while positive thinking frames optimism and is a self-fulfilling prophecy, decisions based on accurate, unbiased data will always lead to greater satisfaction. The team pointed out that pessimists also fear badly compared to realists. However, numbers at the end of the spectrum are relatively sparse because around 80% of the UK population can be classed as unrealistic optimists. University of Bath School of Management Associate Professor Dr Chris Dawson said, Plans based on inaccurate beliefs make for poor decisions and are bound to deliver worse outcomes than would rational realistic beliefs, leading to lower well-being for both optimists and pessimists. Particularly prone to this are decisions on employment, savings and any choice involving risks and uncertainty. The study's co-author, David DeMessa of the London School of Economics, said findings have a particular resonance for personal behaviours amidst a current crisis too. Optimists will see themselves less susceptible of the risk of COVID-19 than others, and he said therefore are less likely to take appropriate precautionary measures, whereas pessimists, on the other hand, may be tempted to never leave their house or send their children to school again. Of course, neither strategy seems like a suitable recipe for well-being, whereas realists take measures based on risk-based assessments and scientific understanding of the disease. The Institute of Leadership Management's Head of Research Policy and Standards, Kate Cooper, says this is all about the pros and cons of a growth mindset. Our guest on episode 12, Mark Efron of the Total Strategy Group, a couple of years ago argued that advocating for a growth mindset was only appropriate when speaking to children. And even Carol Dweck, who originated the term, now recognises that no one has ever got 100% a growth mindset the entire time. Surely, however, whatever you're thinking now, it's likely to be either a positive thought or somewhat of a negative thought, all of which is derived from our mindset. Guest on episode 23, Ryan Gottfriedson, says, It's about being more aware of one's mindset and that we're all on a continuum from negative to positive. 
His extensive research and studies show that having more of a positive mindset is more likely than not to unlock greater success in your life, your work and your leadership. And of course, that's also including your positive thinking. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. Please get in touch if you have any news, insights or stories. Today's guest on the show is Patrick Ungershik. He's the CEO of Navix Consultants. He's a business exit strategist, speaker and author of two books, Dance in the End Zone and Tale of Two Owners. Patrick, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Really excited to get into the stories that you have about how people go about preparing for exiting their businesses. But before we do that, and for the listeners tuning in today, perhaps you give us a little bit of your backstory as to how you ended up doing what you're doing. Sure. It was a circuitous path. I, uh, I'm, I'm here in the States, of course, and I graduated with an undergraduate degree in political science, which qualified me for very few things to do. And I got lucky. I joined a business at the time was led by my father, uh, but I didn't work directly with him. I, I was apprenticed to an investment banker who's since passed away. His name is Peter Collins, but he was a wonderful boss and wonderful mentor. And I spent the first six or seven years of my career doing mid-market investment banking in New York City. And it was an amazing experience because I was on a small team. And Steve, as you know, when you're on a small team, you get to see and touch everything. And I saw an awful lot of very fine companies and an awful with, with owners who were typically very fine and certainly hardworking people struggle to ultimately exit successfully. And that made a very big impression on me from the beginning of my career. It's a common problem, isn't it, with that mid-sized business where you've grown a successful business over a period of time, you've you've created wealth and capital in the business, but it's then what to do with it next, I guess, right? That's right. It's for for many owners of small to mid-sized companies, it's it's a life's passion, it's a calling, it's it's something they're rightly immensely proud of doing, and and if they have success with that business success, typically comes personal financial success. However, most of that financial success is tied up in the company and the emotional and psychological desire to make sure that the company survives and continues one day is incredibly important, just as important as the financial outcome. And all of that is wrapped up in how do I exit successfully one day, yet most owners will exit only once and they only have one shot at success. And it could be a very challenging and uncertain and disorienting position to be in. And particularly if you've been immersed in that business for many, many years and it's been your life's work, there's lots of emotional attachments that come with that too, isn't there? Huge emotional attachments. You know, the, if, if you've got two, if you have two human children and you're a business owner, you typically think you have three kids. And the third child, I mean, just look at the, look at the simple math. That's a third child gets more of your time over the course of your life than the first two do because you're working on it minimum five days a week and probably even more than that. So it is, it is a, a, a wonderful source of emotional sense of pleasure and achievement. Most business leaders define themselves and measure their accomplishments by what they achieve in their company. And you have all of those emotions swirling and wrapped up. And as we get closer to exit and as that event draws near in life, then you've got all those challenges and all that uncertainty, yet all that desire to make sure that you go out the right way. 
And of course, if you're a CEO of a public limited company, you don't have that emotional attachment. You just have the attachment that's the financial one, which comes with the share certificates, right? That's right. Because if, I mean, just look in the news media, you'll see routinely CEOs and other C-level leaders in publicly traded companies talk about succession planning, which is an incredibly important responsibility. Succession planning, I define as being the orderly transfer of leadership of an organization. And that's the mandate of every business leader. Owners and leaders of privately held companies have to think about succession planning, the orderly transfer of leadership. In addition, they have to think about the orderly transfer of ownership as well. And so you've got a double responsibility there. And sometimes they flow well together and sometimes they don't. So yes, absolutely. Publicly traded CEOs won't talk about exit planning. They'll focus on that succession piece when the time draws near. The leaders and owners of privately held companies have to think about both realms. Right. Now, you've been helping organizations and businesses for over 20 years with their strategy to leave and exit and pass on that legacy. Close to 30 at this point, yes. Close to 30. Wow. Okay, excellent. As a exit strategy, when's the right time to start thinking about exit? On day one, but that rarely happens. I mean, Stephen Covey in his well-regarded, well-known book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, points out that you have to begin with the end in mind. And those five, six words sum it up rather nicely. The reality is most entrepreneurs, especially if they're a founder, you're not thinking about your exit on day one. You're excited about launching. You're excited about growing. You're excited about the customer needs that you're going to innovate and you're going to meet and you're going you're gonna to dominate your market and so on. So it's, it's natural that that thought is not part of the fabric of, of analysis and, and the uh, picture when you first launch your company. But the reality is that the longer that this topic is delayed, the longer that the, the business leader waits to start to think about exit, what happens is for that business owner and leader who's rarely or maybe never thinking about exit, you end up making all those strategic decisions about how you're going to grow your company without the backdrop in mind, without knowing where that's going to take you. So the, the, the ideal scenario is on day one. If the practical, realistic scenario in the real world is when you get to your final 10 years and maybe even absolutely your final five years. If you're not very conscious around your exit goals and what your intentions are, you you run the risk of getting yourself in trouble. I mean, five years, as you know, Steve, five years flies by. Five years is 60 months. And so it, it, when you're at that point, absolutely, if you're not already consciously planning and strategizing and laying out the tactics for how you're going to exit, it'll come back to limit your success. Yeah, I agree. And if you bring it into real terms, you've got 60 board meetings, technically, or, or that kind of philosophy of thinking will start to help focus the mind on the right things, the right behaviors and the right strategy, I guess. Absolutely. You've got 60 board meetings. If, you're, if your exit strategy is to sell, which is not the only exit strategy, but the most common one, a typical mid-market company takes about nine to 12 months to sell. And that's starting from the point where you're shaking hands with your banking team. So now you're actually down to 48 months of prep time. And your buyer is typically want, going to want to see five years of financial history. So the month of revenue and profits that you're booking right now is actually going to be viewed by your potential buyer five years from now. 
So you're right. At five years out, I mean, it, it literally is the final stretch of the race. And of course, your buyers or your partners, however you decide to exit, are looking for much more than five years of strategic thinking and planning too, because they're buying something, aren't they, that they want to inherit, grow and develop so they get a return on their investment. And I wonder, Patrick, having that lens, do you often notice people in that space become less strategic in their thinking as they start to leave or exit? Or more? Uh, no, you 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 are under. That's a great question, Steve. You're under pressure to do things that would you would not normally consider doing, or you would or you would look through a different lens if exit wasn't on the immediate horizon. I'll give you a for example. It's the it's the classic scenario is perhaps I've got a sales team of a half a dozen people, but I don't have a dedicated sales leader, chief sales officer, vice president of sales. Should I go hire that person if I'm in the last few years before I'm planning an exit? That person might have an annual salary wages cost of a few hundred thousand dollars or more. Well, how much sales do I need to grow in order to justify that expense? Because on, on the surface, the immediate impact of that type of investment in expanding my senior team is a reduction in our profits, is a reduction in our earnings, which is a reduction in company value. I need time, depending upon my sales cycle and my market and what my company does, I need time for the sales to recover and, and grow higher in order to justify that expense. If my time horizon for owning and leading my company is 10 years, 20 years or more, I might not even think about that decision. It might be a no-brainer because I'm pursuing the growth of my company. But if I am anticipating selling the company maybe sometime in the next two, three years, that decision becomes that much harder. And it's much more difficult to be strategic because I have the tactical, to use your very appropriate word, I have the tactical pressure on the near term on maximizing earnings. So you're right. It, it, it pulls the leadership, the owner, and the company in different directions as you're getting very close to that, what I like to call that one-yard line. Yeah, it's a really fascinating approach, isn't it? Because I wonder if that deadline of exit wasn't there. You would you would make different bets. You would make different decisions because you're still in that growth phase. And I suspect as a exit strategist, do you find yourself having lots of conversations with exiting executives who are going through that push and pull kind of thinking? Yes. An another classic example is uh, many companies, small to mid-market sized companies, struggle with the issue of cu customer concentration. I have one or maybe just a very small number of customers or clients or accounts that account for 20, 30, 50% or more of our revenue. I mean, that's a very common scenario where businesses get launched. They get launched on the back of one key customer relationship. And in the beginning years, you are excited by those opportunities and, and the customer becomes such a large portion of your revenue and your profits because you're doing great work for that customer, delivering superior products and services. And therefore, that customer is throwing more and more opportunities your way. That's exciting. That's rewarding. Again, that's how many companies are birthed and grow to such great success. If you're in the homeward stretch, that's all danger because a buyer is going to come along and in most situations see great risk associated with such a significant amount of the revenue and or profits being tied to one or maybe a very small number of customer relations. So just like you said, if I'm contemplating my exit and I'm working to maximize the value of my company to my buyer or successor, I now have an incentive to, in as healthy of a manner as possible, dilute 
the size and the and the impact of that one key account, that one key customer, and try and grow the rest of the business even faster, which is which is a challenge in most situations in and of itself. And I wonder how many executives, even of public companies, have that mindset that you've just described about how they can drive value. And if I if I guess if there was a direct correlation between a privately owned company and a, a publicly owned company, they're very similar thinking and activities that go on, but the mindset shifts somewhat, doesn't it? It does. And and there is that, you used the word, I believe, a few minutes ago, tension, and the tension applies here. I mean, growing a business and creating value often move arm in arm together, but not always. Clearly, a company that's a $500 million company is, in most situations, without question, more valuable than a $50 million company. So growth and size creates a value impact unto itself. However, growth and value are separate in a number of other characteristics. I just mentioned customer concentration. If that growth is largely achieved through a a concentrated customer base, the growth might be inevitable, clear, it's measurable, but that value increase, increase might not be there, and certainly not in proportion because of the risk that you're creating. Another challenge that is common, more common in privately held companies, but not uniquely so, is the issue of we call owner dependency, Steve. Yeah. And what that's all about is how much can this company not just survive, but actually thrive without the current owner playing a day-to-day role in operations, customer relations, vendor relations, and so on. A lot of small to mid-market-sized companies, very profitable, very successful companies, will struggle if the owner or current owners are removed from the picture. So again, the growth might be there. You might be able to see the growth measured year by year, but that value is maybe not going to be there as soon as that owner, who's such a key employee, is removed from the picture. Right Now, that's a much more common scenario in private companies, but it's not unique to private companies. I mean, we have a wonderful business story going on right now with Tesla and Elon Musk, who is such an influential and impactful individual. But at this point where we are in the development of Tesla, would you buy Tesla stock if Elon Musk was not in the picture tomorrow? Right. A lot of investors probably would not because that publicly traded company is heavily dependent on its owner. I should say its chief executive at this point in time. It can have a massive impact on the valuation of the company as well, can't it? Massive. Yes. Uh, I mean, so you look at any industry and when you do a little bit of research, it's it's common, it's the norm that you'll see there's typically a range of multiples and multiples of earnings, but sometimes a multiple revenue. But there's a range of multiples that most often apply as guideposts in that industry. It could be six to nine times earnings or five to 10 or whatever the numbers are. Well, who determines who gets the six and who gets the nine? Or who determines who gets the low end or who gets the high end of the of those guideposts that may apply in industry? And the answer is typically not size driven because that's already factored into the guideposts. The answer is typically these other elements that drive value, one could argue, independent of growth. And we've listed two or three of them already, customer concentration, owner dependency, how compelling is that brand compared to its peer group. There's a number of elements that you could point to and say they may not directly drive growth, but they absolutely drive value, especially at sale. Sure. Given your experience, Patrick, what are the key components that make for a successful exit? Uh, I think it starts with the owner or owners, if it's an ownership team, uh, having clarity around their goals. 
most owners have some aspirations they can very quickly list. Uh, I want to re- reach a certain amount of financial reward. I want the company to survive without me. I want the the culture to be preserved and the employees to be treated fairly. Those are rather universally held aspirations, but you need to probably be more specific in your goals and your outcomes in order to be able to implement the strategies or tactics that are going to achieve your variation and your interpretation of those aspirations. That's part of it. Then the other part of it is getting the company ready, Um, getting a company ready for exit, especially if it's going to be sale to an outside third-party buyer is a very different process than just running and leading a well-managed company. We talked about some of the issues already that drive value, sometimes independently of growth. Uh, There's getting a company ready for buyers. There's the level of financial preparation that's involved in preparing the company's books and records and financial reports for buyers. That's a level of, of discipline and diligence that many privately held companies don't have, especially if their buyer is potentially going to be a publicly traded company which is going to have a much more rigorous approach to financial underwriting that deal. So it goes back to, we talked about when, you know, if you're down to five years, Steve, you can see that there's a lot of work to do condensed in that five years on top of just keeping the company going and keeping the company growing and growing profitably. Now we both share the backgrounds of coming from investment banking and I was always taught on day one of fund manager school never time the market. There's never a right time to invest. It's just if everything stacks up, go. How does that square off though when you're exiting? Is there a right time to sell or exit? Yes, I think there is. And and uh, what, they, what they taught us in school is correct, but we have to talk about what market are we timing. If I'm thinking of the, about the publicly traded markets and, and, and opportunities as an investor, I would tend to agree with that statement. You don't time the market, you just go. When you're talking about a privately held company and anticipating when is the right time to exit, it's it's a Venn diagram. We've got three circles, and we want to we want to ideally target what happens in the middle of the overlap. Um, one of those circles is, am I ready individually, personally? The second of those circles is, is my company ready? Which we've talked about some of the issues there. And then the third circle is, is the market ready? And timing the market when you're anticipating exiting from a privately held company is hugely important. And Steve, as we all know, here we are, and we're dealing with a worldwide global pandemic that has unevenly impacted different countries and different communities in different ways. Definitely. Here in the States, economically, for most companies, most mid-market companies, this would be a disastrous time to try and exit at this point in time because of the noise the distraction, the very difficult economic environment that's here in the States right now. Now, you can't make that blanket statement across all industries and all situations, but I certainly can generalize and say for most companies, that would be true. Sure. And you look at you look at the global pattern of recessions and, and the periods of economic growth, they tend to fall in six to 10-year cycles. And when you look at valuations, and this is true for North America, this is true for Europe, this is true for um, Australia, I know. When you tend to look at market cycles, what we typically see is multiples will rise and fall by anywhere from 25 to 40 percent, Steve, depending upon whose data you're looking at, based upon the economic cycle. Meaning when I'm in a recessionary environment, most industries, most of the time, see multiples that are 25 to 40 percent lower than what they are likely to be four or five years later when we've moved past that recessionary cycle and we're moving into a sustained growth situation. 
Now, if you try and time it down to the day, down to the quarter, you're going to drive yourself crazy and it'll be self-defeating. But broad macroeconomic trends, a good banker can be paying attention to those trends and can see that multiples are strong and buyers are frothy, to use the term we all have learned. Um, and in normal times, in healthy economic times, say, okay, this is a better time to sell. Very quickly, here's the problem though, Steve, is that in those higher growth, good economic times, what's the company doing? It's probably making money. It's got a great pipeline. The team has got high morale. We're hiring people. Customers are happy. You're making a lot of money. It's profitable. That's fun. That's exciting. That's why business owners signed up to be a business owner. Right. That's the time that most owners don't want out. That's the time when they're having too much fun. Um, it's when, you know, I have a lot of phone calls on, on a typical month where I'll hear, especially pre-COVID-19, I'll hear business owners go, you know, I'm making a lot of money. I'm having a lot of fun. Like I said, the pipeline looks great. Why would I want to exit now? And my response often is, well, do you want to wait until the pipeline is thin and the margins are down and you're breaking even and morale is tight and the, you know, the team is really tense? Is that when you're going to want to exit? And you can, you can hear the light bulb go off and go, oh, yeah, it's probably not the right way to time the market, is it? No, it's not. It feels counterintuitive to leave something that's successful and fun and energetic, but absolutely from a valuation perspective, it's probably the right time. So much, yeah. The, the, the emotionally, the time that you will least want to exit is probably the time that you should. And the time that you probably are most emotionally interested in exiting is probably the time you should not. And do you often experience, Patrick, in the work that you do now, those leaders of these organizations that have built their life's work almost over a period of time, do you ever find that they also don't sell because there is this fear of what happens next, what happens after the, the life and the work that they've created for themselves? Yeah, it's a, an issue that does not get the level of attention that it should. We, we call that issue life after exit. What am I going to do with my time and my talent and my skills and my, and my capacities after I exit from my company? In, in my experience, Steve, very few entrepreneurs seek to do nothing after they exit from right. their, their primary company. Um, there's nothing wrong with a life of pure recreation. I'm certainly not opposed to that in any way, but that's just not what a lot of people wish to do. A lot of people see themselves doing something else. And when you exit from your company and you don't have something else to occupy your time and your talent in a way that's engaging and rewarding, um, all kinds of negative things happen. And I've seen it. You begin to doubt, why did I exit in the first place? Well, did I make a huge mistake? Uh, and it's a mistake you can't undo. Um, or so the risk there is either not having something else meaningful and engaging to do or having something that you think is going to be meaningful and engaging to do. But you start doing it for a little while and you realize, as a client once told me years ago, what was fun as a hobby stinks as a job. And so sometimes the mistake that gets made is I think I know what I want to do in life after exit. I do it for a little while and I realize it's not my next life's calling and, and I end up still being stuck again. And it really doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. If you, if you wake up every day without something rewarding and interesting and engaging to do, that's probably not going to be chalked up as a happy exit. Sure. Purpose doesn't really cost a thing, does it? Having a real sense of purpose no, is no. You know, void of money and void of uh, other things. Yes, absolutely. You created a couple of books. The first was Dance in the End Zone, and it's a real 
a playbook to help business owners with their exit. Well, what was the inspiration for you putting pen to paper? Uh, <laughs> the true story is the inspiration was was my coach and mentor at the time being frustrated with me. <laughs> I was um, I remember very distinctly he and I were having a bite to eat, and I was I thought I was talking with my coach to get coaching advice and. It turns out, I think with a little bit of hindsight, I was probably whining in that moment, but I was telling him that, you know, at the time there's, and this is probably still true today, there's thousands of books out there on how to lead or grow a business. But at that time, there's only maybe a couple dozen about how to exit from a company. And I, I wouldn't want to admit this in a social setting, but I had bought all of those books courtesy of Amazon and and read most of them. And, and I walked away disappointed. And my my mentor looked at me over over lunch and he said, "Well, why don't you go write your own damn book?" <laughs> and I walked away chagrined, and I walked away not like being challenged. And I didn't tell anybody the rest of the, the true the true story, Steve, is I didn't tell anybody what I was going to do. And I I started a pull together. I'd written a few articles for some for some publications, and I started to splice together. And I got to about 30,000 words or so and realized that I had to finish. And, and I found it an incredibly, um, it, it changed the direction of my company. It changed the direction of me as a speaker. Because when you write a book, and I encourage anybody who hasn't done it to think about the project, whether you're a writer or not, simply because what it forces you to do is it forces you to organize and synthesize and arrange your thoughts in a way that I think is much more clear, much more directive uh, the book became in, in many ways, a resource for my team to grow. It became the book we all work from the playbook, if you will, that we all work from. So you're writing that first book dance in the end zone. It, it's still very important to us from a marketing standpoint. And I'm pleased whenever I meet a business owner who's, who's read it and says it's been helpful. Uh, but I, I would, I would do it all over. I would write a first book all over again, just from the internal benefits, if you will. And those thoughts that you write down can then turn into tools that you use every day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Our, our marketing team still extracts articles from the book and white papers and slices and dices it. And, and uh, we're actually working on uh, an updated edition that will come out later this year, right now as we speak. So um, it's an invaluable exercise for anyone who has even, you know, part of your job description is thinking and thought leadership. I, even if it never gets published, I, I think it's an incredible exercise. Of course, yours did. And so, too, did the tale of two owners. And I suspect is that to help people that co-own an organization or co-own a business work through some of their conflicts, goals and outcomes? It is. We did some market research as part of my first book, A Dance in the End Zone. And the market research had a had a few nuggets in there that was, was were incredibly surprising to us. And this is a survey of North American uh, privately held companies. And one of uh, the biggest learnings that came out of that research was about seventy percent of privately held companies in in North America are owned by more than one individual. Uh, I have never seen any data for Europe, but I suspect it's probably similar. Right. And um, we, look, we went back and looked at our client base, hundreds of businesses over the years, and found that it matched up perfectly. Um, and I still, when I have a chance to survey, if I'm speaking to a room of 300 business owners pre-COVID-19, I'll say, raise your hand if you have a business partner, and typically about seven out of 10 hands go up in the air. And that's incredibly important because when you share ownership in a company with one or more other individuals, or maybe an organization like an investment company, now, all these things that you have to think about and address and plan for 
and act on to be ready to exit, now you're in that you're you're sharing that journey with somebody else. And they may or may not have the same goals. Very often they don't, um, just because two different people, two or more different people. And so, yes, I ended up writing a tale of two owners, exactly as you said. It's as far as I know, Steve, it is the only book in existence that is specifically a, a resource for how business partners should approach these issues as a team, as a partnership, and how do they explore these issues together, and how do they answer them in a way that is collaborative and maintains that alignment, which is probably so fundamental to their business success in the first place. Definitely so. In my experience, prior to do what I'm doing now, helping business owners that have different perspectives, different families, different outcomes, whilst they share the same goals and ambitions for the organization, they come from a different place, a different reason. And therefore, the same reasons that they grow the business and want to achieve things will definitely then play out when they come to exit, won't it? Absolutely. We're working with a client right now that's a, um, a, a large company based in the, um, here in the United States, three owners. I'll keep the example very quick and simple. Let's just say they all own a third, a third, a third. And they're, they're in the advanced stages of, of the investment banking process. They're likely to sell for a very successful number. They all have aspirations. They all have multiple things they want to see happen to this company that they have successfully created together. Um, one of the owners, however, the primary drive is what's going to be the price? How much are we going to sell for? What's the value we're going to walk away? Not that he doesn't care about other things, but that's the top of his mind. Another, the second, so let's just say the second of the third owners is about how are my people going to be treated? I mean, we've got hundreds of employees here. We'll want to make sure that they're treated fairly. It's not that he doesn't care about price, but the top of his mind and his priorities is what's going to be the impact of the team. And then the third owner just happens to be the youngest of the three. And that individual wants to stay involved with the organization going forward. And he cares about money and he cares about the team, but he probably top of his mind is what's this going to be an impact in him personally in his life because he's probably got another 20, 30 working years in front of him. So here you've got three partners who share an immense bond with one another. They are very um, strongly rooted in their financials. They have a wonderful relationship. They built a very successful company, yet every turn and every development in the sale process, we're looking at each issue through three different lenses. And they already know that it's beginning to tug and pull on them and go in different directions. Even the, And that's not a loss of personal respect, or it's not, it's not an erosion of their relationship with one another. It's three different shareholders, three different owners who are trying to row the boat in slightly different directions. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Really fascinating stuff. And thank you yeah. for sharing some of your insights as to what you do. So this part of the show, Patrick, is where I turn the leadership lens on you. So you're a successful entrepreneur and CEO of your own businesses too. So I want to hack into your leadership mind now and find out what your top three leadership hacks would be. Um, I had fun with this. I, this, is a, this is a great uh, exercise, and I've enjoyed listening to others that you've uh, worked with share their leadership hacks. Mine came to me surprisingly quickly. I, 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 maybe that's a sign of a simple approach on my part. So my first one is, if you don't know what to do or say, ask a question. Uh, there's been great minds out there who have written entire books and TED Talks about the power of asking questions. My specific hack is if you're stuck, if you literally just don't know what to do in a particular moment, just keep asking questions. Usually that helps reveal the direction to go or the decision that needs to be made. So it's a, it's a trigger response. It's a default uh, position I, I, I like to take. 
My second is, I didn't invent this question by any means, um, but it's one that I find myself using often, uh, both for my companies and also with the clients we work with, is if I had no fear, what would I do? Or I'd like to substitute we in there. If we, mm. if we had no fear as a team, as an organization, what would we do? I, I, I've, I think too many individuals and too many teams don't stop and let that question settle and really wrestle with it and explore it. Uh, it, it changes thinking and expands thinking. It changes paradigms. So that's my second one. And then my third, I know the source of the third. It comes from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And my third leadership hack is a stop doing list. Most companies, leaders, leadership teams get pretty heavily bogged down with identifying those things that they need to do more of or add on to their plate or expand. And I think very few organizations or teams spend any time uh, specifically and intentionally discussing what they need to stop doing, which is hugely important because if you can stop doing things, you create bandwidth, you create capacity, you increase focus, and all the wonderful insights that Jim Collins shares in his book. It's one that I, I find myself utilizing on a pretty regular basis is just to stop and ask myself or ask my team or ask a client, hey, what's on the stop doing list at this point in time? It's a great hack, Patrick. And actually, I think the reasons why people don't have much of a stop list is that fear of what will people think, what will people feel. It means I've invested all this time and energy doing something that might not be giving me the value. So they're super hacks. Thank you for sharing. Sure. So the next part we're going to tap into is what we affectionately call hack to attack. <laughs> so this is where something in your world in the past has not worked out in the way that you'd intended it to. And as a result of that, though, you've used that experience as something that's now positive in your life. So what would be your hack to attack? Well, I mean, I've got a long list of, if this is a list of leadership mistakes I made, I mean, how long is your podcast, Steve? <laughs> um, I, it was a variation on the first uh, of the three hacks that you asked me to share, which is, if you don't know what to do, ask a question. When I first took over, I've got several companies, and when I first took over as CEO of, of my first company, uh, I, I had a, a lot a lot to learn on the job, and I was relying heavily on ask a question. And, and there was a moment where we were going through, this was, there was a recession going on, we were going through a difficult economic time, and my controller came in to see me about a very difficult financial question. And as we were wrestling with it, she was getting more and more frustrated and exasperated, and she turned to me in the middle of this meeting, and she said, and she said something like, Patrick, don't ask me another question for Pete's sake. I just need to know the answer. I'd tell me what to do. And I think the, the hack to attack is there are moments to be, to be listening, absolutely. And there are moments to be asking questions of yourself and of your team. There also are moments where you've got, you've got to step up and make the decision and, and even be directive. Um, teams need confident leadership. Uh, even if you're not as confident as you would like to be, they still they still need a direction. They still need a decision at some time. So there's a balance act there. Sure, we we need to ask questions on a regular basis as a matter of habit uh, and and a response to situations. But there's also moments where I've I learned in that moment that there are times to just make a decision, tell your team what you're going to do, and and get everyone alignment around it going forward. And it's a it's an art, right? It's not it's not a science. Um, but that's my hack attack is sometimes I maybe default too much to asking questions when there are, when there are moments where you've got to say, this is what the answer is. Let's go forward. You're so right. Even this week, I was having a coaching conversation with one of my clients who was a very ex senior executive director of a fortune 500 company. 
And yet this, the situation still came down to, I need to be collaborative. I need to be engaging. And, and you, yes, you do. But sometimes you also just need to say, I think we should do these things. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and how do you read the situation? How do you read the moment? How do you read the faces of the team uh, in, in order to know when you're at one of those situations? And it is a balancing act. And, we're, you know, I have made a mistake at that moment. Uh, and we, we're all going to continue to make mistakes, but you've got to be intentional about about feeling your way through it. Definitely so. And then the last thing we'd like to do with you, Patrick, is to do a bit of time travel. And at this part of the show, we're going to ask you to jump into Time Machine, go back and bump into Patrick at 21, and you have a chance to give him some advice. What would it be? Obey your instincts. You know, the the the, the phrase that I think most of us fall back on is trust your instincts, and that's I, uh, obey is a certain amount of mm, it's like that, yeah. a, a certain amount more ri- rigid, disciplined response, and it's also a, a, an actionable. You're supposed to take action and. And, and I mentioned how I've you've, you um, asked me in the beginning how I got started, and I, I, I've got lucky, uh, I must freely admit, in the beginning of my career. Um, I had aspirations around doing different things, but I didn't act on those instincts. I didn't obey my instincts. And it's not just about, and it'd be fun to go back and have that conversation with ourselves at 21, wouldn't it? But I think it also applies, I know it applies for me to today. I find, if I find myself struggling with a decision, struggling with a course of action as a business leader. Very often, if I, if I remember in the moment to stop and ask, am I obeying my instincts? If I'm struggling, I, I probably am not. I'm, I'm probably guilty of forgetting that one. So especially in the beginning of a career back at age 21, when there's so much, so much flexibility and so much uh, uh, good uncertainty about where you can go with your time and your talents and your career, just obey your instincts and go, go chase whatever you want to chase at that point in time. The rest of life will figure itself out. Love that. Super stuff. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you, Steve. As folk have been listening to this, I suspect they will be wanting to know how they can get hold of a bit more information and insight about you, your firms, and what is you're doing at the moment. Where's the best place we can direct our listeners to to find out a bit more about you? Thank you so much. So our company that does the exit planning work is called Navix, N-A-V-I-X, as in navigate towards your exit. And our website is Navix Consultants, with an S on the end, navixconsultants.com. You can find information about my two books there. We have uh, dozens, uh, hundreds actually, of videos and articles and a, and a couple dozen white papers and ebooks, all of which to help business owners and leaders understand these issues and, and get educated on the importance and, and how to prepare for exit. I think, Steve, probably the best place to start because there's just a lot of content on the website is uh, an ebook that we created a couple years ago that's probably our most popular ebook. It's called Your Last Five Years. And it lays out what do business owners need to be thinking about and doing and and tackling during that final 60 months. It's free. Uh, people just need to log into the site and download the ebook, Your Last Five Years. And our listeners will also find links to all of those sites and all of the resources that we've just spoken about in our show notes as well. Wonderful. So, Patrick, whether I think our listeners are either in the space of growing developing or considering exit for their business they'll get loads out of listening to this show so from my perspective i just wanted to say thanks ever so much for sharing your insights your knowledge and your leadership hacks with us on the leadership hacker podcast thank you steve a delight to to be with you across the pond today and and uh, i've i've enjoyed becoming a subscriber to your podcast as well it's um, some wonderful material you're putting out it's my honor and pleasure to be with you today thank you patrick really appreciate that 
I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker. Thank you.